You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. And Christian Bale has let us know that Satan is actually Dick Cheney, according to the Golden Globes acceptance speech. Um, and uh, whether that's right or not, I'll leave that up to you to decide. But my name is Danny Anderson, as always, welcoming you to another episode of the Sectarian Review podcast. I'm hoping you're having a great new year. Um, if you're new to the show, I encourage you to subscribe on either iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use. And um, in addition to that, if you could leave a review, that would be great. That would help other people find the show as well and, uh, and kind of create a little community um, around the stuff that we talk about here, and I would really appreciate that. Um, here at the beginning of the year, I've been trying to establish a new kind of goal for myself, a New Year's resolution, if you will, for the show. And I'd like to do more interviews with people who kind of do things and create things. And so I've had in the next the beginning of the year, I'll have a poet on here, someone who's edited, edits a, a little academic press uh, and that sort of thing. And um, and we have another one today. We have Ed Simon, who's sort of a regular on the show. He's got a new book out uh, called uh, America and Other Fictions, uh, published by Zero Press or Zero Book. Books, excuse me, Ed. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh uh, no, it's always great to have you, Ed. Um, oh, one of you. the one of the things I want to do with this series, where I talk to people, is kind of use it as a way to inspire other people to do things, sure. right? So maybe at the beginning, I'll ask you some questions about your process and kind of yeah, what yeah. inspires you and your philosophy of writing and that kind of thing. And I would really like to encourage anybody if you're out there doing something, if you have a really cool blog or something. Send it my way. I'll put it in my RSS feed, and, and maybe we'll get you on the show to talk about what you do. But but for today, we want to focus on Ed a little bit today. Um, and so, um, first of all, um, welcome. How, uh, tell us, uh, the book's been out for a couple months now, right? It came out, I think, uh, December 1st. So, yeah, a little bit more than, than one month. Okay. That's yeah. great. It's very exciting. I have to say I really enjoyed it. It's a collection oh, of – what, probably 20 essays or so. And, uh, and, and it's really, um, they're all very thought provoking. And I want to talk a little bit about the, the collection as a collection here in a little sure, bit. Sure. Um, but first, can you tell us a little bit about the kind of range of your interests and maybe your intellectual background and what influences you as a writer? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I always love these kind of process questions too. Like, um, I, I don't know if you've ever read those old like Paris review interviews. Oh, that they do. I love those. Talk. Yes. <laughs> They're fantastic because I love the questions that are always like, not that you have to ask me these questions, but I love the very, like, what time do you get up to write kind of questions? <laughs> Cause they're so like straightforward. But then I feel like this kind of whole philosophy of composition uh, comes out of them. When you see so, so many, it's such a diversity of, of processes, right? And yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's one of the things too. Um, I'm sure like as a teacher of writing yourself, you know, that you always tell your students is kind of like, it's hard to teach writing because it's so idiosyncratic in a way. Not that there aren't, you know, obviously objective qualities to it, but um, you kind of find what works for you and then like just, you know, keep going with it. Yeah. Um, so in terms of my, my own background uh, as a writer is uh, I, I come out of a academic background originally. Um, so I have a, a PhD in English and most of my published writing up until about five years ago was, was primarily uh, of the academic scholarly peer reviewed kind of um, category. And uh, I have since radically 
well, maybe not so radically, but I've moved in a, in a different direction writing um, for, I don't want to say more general audience necessarily, because that always sounds weird to me. Um, but I'm not doing um, scholarly work in the same way that peer-reviewed scholarly work is scholarly. But I think I take from that background uh, a certain way of doing things. Uh, and uh, particularly, I was trained, my doctoral work was primarily in like early modern Renaissance literature, early American literature, that kind of stuff. Uh, and the theoretical background that came from was something called um, new historicism. I can see which, that. I was actually going to yeah. ask you that question. Okay, great. Okay, <laughs> you got that off the. But um, it's a it's a very particular way of uh, doing literary scholarship that's indebted to people like Stephen Greenblatt. And, uh, it tends to be very narrative heavy. So uh, if your listeners aren't necessarily familiar with it as a as a way of writing literary criticism or literary theory. Uh, new historicists tend to like to come up with like a representative anecdote or example or object or something that you kind of frame a narrative around and then you get into a more abstract argument after that, as opposed to this very kind of like straightforward uh, literal recounting of whatever one's argument is. So it's a it's a way of kind of doing literary theory by telling a story, I guess. Uh, and I think that that's a, a really useful way of doing um, intellectual work. So I kind of borrowed that as a, as a edifice that I build a lot of my essays on. So I'll begin with some kind of, you know, anecdote or whatever, and then kind of like extrapolate out from that. Yeah, I noticed that. Um, and, and it, they serve almost as like a metaphor, right? Um, but there's also a way in which new historicism tries to situate, everything within mm -hmm. its historical context, right? So this, anything that yes. happens, any work of literature that's written, you can't just ignore its historical context. It's an outcome. It's symptomatic of its, exactly. uh, of its context. And so, yeah, um, yeah. And, yeah. And I could totally see that, um, that style influencing what, the way you write this, this more general fic, this more general uh, type of writing here, not academic writing, um, which by the way is a kind of a recurring theme on this show. I, I feel increasingly kind of bored and constrained with mm. strictly academic writing. I realize there's a great use for it. I realize also that I am not well suited for that. Right. And so I'm yeah. much more interested in having conversations with more general, generally educated, curious people who are not necessarily professionals. Right. And so um, I, that, that kind of writing is much more, speaks much more interestingly to me. Um, and your book is, is a great example of that. So um, I, I am, I completely uh, agree with you on that in terms of a lot of um, scholarly work in the humanities, at least, which as with you, I like understand why it exists. I'm glad that it exists. I, I tend to feel that perhaps too much of it is produced. Uh, and sometimes I think the criticism that is leveled against it uh, is that nobody reads it, which is yeah. like, that's certainly true, but I don't, and not always true, but there's, there's some truth to that. Uh, but I think that that's less of the problem with it than the fact that what it's produced for, which it tends to be produced for narrowly professional reasons. Yeah. Well, I think kind of um, wearing the mantle of being produced for, you know, producing truth or whatever. So I, I think that you have a growth of like a whole new genre of um, academically inflected or intellectually inflected nonfiction writing that is produced by places like the Los Angeles Review of Books or The Point uh, or N Plus One mm -hmm. or, you know, whoever. Uh, and Zero Books, I guess I'll say I'll throw them, them out there, too. Uh, and then I think that it's this kind of, uh, you know, it's not necessarily peer reviewed, but it's produced by uh, 
academically minded people, but it's written in a different sort of way and it's doing a different kind of work. Uh, and I think that there's like, we're kind of in a renaissance of that stuff right now. Yeah. You know, when we talk about the kind of like death of the humanities, I think that that we're seeing the death of the traditional way of doing the humanities, but I think that there's a whole new kind of um, rhetorical community that's, that's developing. It's really, really exciting right now. Yeah. Like a Republic of letters or whatever you want to call it. No, I agree. Uh, and it's, a, it's a much broader conversation and yeah. things are not so disciplinarily divided in this sphere mm-hmm. that you're talking about. And, and I, I love it. And incidentally, you mentioned zero books. Um, if you're not listening, listener to the zero books podcast with Douglas Lane, I, I highly recommend it. It's one of my go-tos every time it's published. I, um, it's a great podcast and he often interviews, um, authors, um, from their press, but, um, a number of other people about timely topics, um, from a much more narrowly pol- political perspective than I tend to t- approach things. But, um, but it's a great podcast and, uh, and this book is, uh, published by that same publisher. And so, uh, I just want to give them a little bit of a shout out while we're at it there. Um, but yeah, and I think Ed, your point about academic publishing, really being kind of instrumental and kind mm-hmm. of for promotional purposes and just sort of jockeying for professional position. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I know that's not its intent, but that's the practice in too many cases, yeah. right? Um, which if you go back to that whole grievance studies uh, problem, uh, that that whole controversy about the grievance studies, we did an episode oh, on yeah. it with, with Derek Varn a few months ago. Yeah. Um, I think their target was wrong. It is They're sort of picking on the people working in this kind of publishing industry without understanding they're writing that way because of very material reasons. Right. And I think that's the bigger problem than the individual articles that get published under that do kind of perhaps silly work at times. Right. And so, yeah, yeah, I know I totally agree. And I'm much more drawn to this kind of more, um, to me, vibrant kind of writing here. And so, uh, and like I said, well done for you. This is, this is great. Um, in addition, so I'm in Mount Aloysius college here in Crescent, Pennsylvania, which is sort of North or West central Pennsylvania. And we're about an hour and a half out of Pittsburgh. Um, Pittsburgh is really big for you and your development. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about Pittsburgh. Sure. Yeah. Uh, could, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, just uh, just, speak, <laughs> just to wax rhapsodic on Pittsburgh. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. So uh, you know, I think uh, I'm from the city of Pittsburgh. I grew up in the East End uh, of the city, and you know, spent 18 years of my life there when I grew up. And then after college, and I didn't go to college far away. I went to college in Washington, Pennsylvania. So it's only like an hour south. But if you know Pittsburghers, like crossing a bridge is like a big deal. So like it <laughs> felt it felt like I went away to college, even though it was like like a 45 minute drive or whatever into the city. Uh, and then I lived in the city again for like four or five years uh, after college and then moved out east to eastern Pennsylvania for a bit. Uh, and I currently live in uh, Massachusetts. Um, but Pittsburgh sort of, um, I think because obviously, and I can't speak to everyone, obviously, some people like don't like where they're from, but I happen to like Pittsburgh quite a bit. Um, so it uh, figures prominently uh, in my work. And I think um, in a lot of the writing, I've used it in kind of a metaphorical sense mm-hmm. um, for representing a certain type of um Americanness, or uh, you know, a certain type of like uh, industrial civilization, or whatever. And I'm not unique for that. Obviously, that's how a lot of people write about Pittsburgh. It's sort of the go-to way to write about Pittsburgh. Um, but I think a lot of why it emerges so often in my writing is just because, um, you know, it's like what I'm what I'm familiar with. So I'm kind of like, it's a go-to place for a lot of the the ways that I can know that I know what I'm writing about. You know what I mean? And when I write about Pittsburgh, I know that I'm correct in a way that I don't for other things because I know that I know Pittsburgh so well and so deeply. Um, so I always feel like there's a risk when I write about stuff that I'm less familiar with that I might be kind of 
talking out of my posterior, but I don't get that same sense with Pittsburgh. Like I'll, I'll go toe to toe with anyone when it comes to, to Pittsburgh knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I also, I mean, I'm from a similar, so I'm from Cleveland. Right. And mm-hmm. so, um, and so, oh, no, Cleveland, ooh, ooh, <laughs> you're like us, but you're on a lake. You're flat. <laughs> yeah. We're much ooh, flatter. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. <laughs> Far fewer bridges and, and yeah, yeah. only one river, I think. And so, um, but yeah, no, the, um, there's something about those kinds of cities though, that I think mm-hmm. it's not unrelated to your, both of our approaches to, we're kind of, between academia and normal people, right? And so, um, <laughs> and, and Pittsburgh and Cleveland are both cities that are right in the middle between Chicago and New York, right? And they're often, <laughs> they're big, vibrant places where interesting things happen, but they're often kind of just kind of forgotten or ignored, yeah. right? And, and I feel like um, th- there's a there's a parallel there. There's a corollary. There's one of your sort of uh, metaphors to open a future essay with, perhaps, uh, just sort of the symbolic uh, geography yeah. of Pittsburgh. Uh, because I do think it it is like, it does function as a big, vibrant American city as Chicago and New York does do, but they, but it, it also has this kind of working class uh, component that those cities don't have as much of anymore, right? And, and so, yeah. Well, it's funny to me because you know um, I live in outside of Boston right now, and I love Boston a lot. Uh, and there's a lot of there's some similarities I think between Boston and Pittsburgh in a lot of ways. Um, Boston, of course, such an academic town i mean like the higher education it's like a company town for colleges and universities <laughs> exactly. and pittsburgh is like a tweedy kind of place too um but there's also the kind of like reputation for uh like a working class identity in, in boston i mean there's like how many movies are always made south like, it's just become like yeah. dropped r is yeah. like the name of the movie you know what i mean it's this whole genre of like this obsession over places like southie and dorchester and whatever it's kept mark Wahlberg uh, employed yeah yeah exactly <laughs> And that's totally, totally uh, part of Boston. But one of the things that um, fascinated me uh, is that there's, I mean, Pittsburgh's a divided city too. Every city, you know, racially and economically. I'm not going to say that Pittsburgh's not. uh, But I feel like the working class identity in Pittsburgh almost unconsciously permeates the place in a way that in Boston, the divisions are like much more obvious between Mm. the kind of like um you know the boston brahmins and like the boston irish catholic and the working class versus the kind of like ivy league set you know these divisions are like really built in in boston in a way that they oddly uh aren't in pittsburgh to an extent and just this this is totally anecdotal like unscientific example uh but i wanted to go uh grocery shopping um you know a couple sundays ago uh, and the trick that you always use in Pittsburgh is you go when the Steelers are playing because absolutely no one is at, right? <laughs> and I was like, oh, New England Patriots. Everyone talks about like what a football town Boston is. Like, I'll go out, like, nope, it's filled with other like nerdy academic people like me who thought the same thing. And I was like, in in Pittsburgh, you could just like wander the streets. They'd be totally empty. <laughs> so for the kind of like, uh, and I'm not saying it's good or bad, um, but it was interesting to me that kind of uh, difference, especially considering the sort of like, reputation that boston has yeah um yeah no i agree i think there's something very um unique about these sort of industrial rust belt cities right yeah um, yeah yeah and and i think there's something about them that comes out in your writing somehow i I feel like the the, has infected it has infected your dna uh (laughs) as a writer in a good way yeah and i think i think the, the the hybridity that you're talking about with between academia and kind of regular mm-hmm. people, uh, I think that might not be unrelated to your background. And so that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring up Pittsburgh. And so one of the things too with Pittsburgh that I, I will 
make a pitch for is Pittsburgh is like a it's a weird place in like the best possible way. But whenever I go anywhere else, uh, everywhere else seems kind of weird to me because I think they're not weird. And there's just an there's like an oddity to Pittsburgh that is like very, you know, forced, I find in other places where it's like, you know, keep Denver weird, keep Austin weird, whatever. Like nobody in Pittsburgh would even think to do that because Pittsburgh's so weird. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's like ceramic dinosaurs that are out just for the hell of it. And, yeah. you know, my, my wife is like, why are there the dinosaurs everywhere? And I'm like, other cities don't put dinosaurs. Everywhere. I don't know. You know, there's just like a it's just like a, a worldview that I think is a perspective that is a charmingly uh, eccentric yeah. or gently surreal i think yeah is how i put it there's like an uh, like an oddity an oddball strangeness to it that i think might be born out of the fact that um uh it is a large city that geographically in a lot of ways was isolated too because mm-hmm. it's halfway between uh almost exactly halfway between new york and chicago but like you know america's big <laughs> like that's a long trip you take the train uh to new york all the time and it's like an 11 hour train trip right you know it is, it is a long slog whereas if you're on like the actual east coast not to like enter into that debate but if you're on like the you know if it only takes you 45 minutes to get to the ocean all of those cities are like really close together i mean boston's not far from providence is not far from new york is not far from philly is not far from dc you know yeah. Uh, whereas like uh, Pittsburgh's kind of this incubator uh, and because it's, um, you know, it's a large city uh, in kind of not surrounded by a whole lot. I think that anyone who's like a little interesting or different from the places near it will go to it. So it's kind of this magnet for for people. And I think Cleveland, my sense is Cleveland's maybe a similar kind of thing. Too. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Cleveland's yeah, definitely yeah. strange. I, I'm always proud of our weird free stamp in the, and there's a, a public park uh, right off of East Ninth Street. Oh, yeah. Downtown. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's a giant, gigantic yeah. free, like a, a rubber stamp that just says free in inverted letters. Like you're stamping everything with the word free and everybody laughs yeah, yeah. at it. But I think because it's so bizarre and absurd, that makes it so lovable. Uh, well, I, love, you got, I mean, I love, you're the city of Harvey P car right i mean like exactly. like like lovably weird you know? exactly yeah yeah i was just yeah. talking about harvey p car this morning with a colleague yeah so yeah. yeah places like that you know tend to engender their own very idiosyncratic cultures right and and honestly i feel like that i don't want to say that your writing is weird but you find quirks in culture mm-hmm. uh in your writing and and that seems to be that's a good transition actually to my next question which is what do you binds this these essays together as a collection, because I feel like there's a, a smorgasbord of various topics that you're uh, talking about. And, yeah. and I feel like the, what you're looking for is something idiosyncratic and quirky that illustrates a larger lesson for then and now. Uh, and I don't know how you would describe your own project. I, I think that um, because the pieces were written over a pretty broad sweep of time, um, so I think it was like 2015 to uh, 2017, I think. So I guess it's not that broad of a sweep of time, but it seemed, seemed like it. <laughs> so they're, uh, you know, they're not always written with a foreknowledge of what was going to happen historically or whatever. And, and it's in a very pragmatic sense. I think it's the time in which they were written that binds them, which is not a satisfying answer. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think the interest that I have in that time, I mean, my continual interest is always um, – religion obviously and i'm a writer who writes about religion and i primarily think of myself as a writer who writes about religion so i think it's a they're united in a sense of um what people think is religion is not always religion and things that people think aren't religion often are religion yeah if that makes sense and i I think that uh for this particular collection the unifying theme 
was the ways in which uh, America can be a religion, the idea of America or American civil religion or American exceptionality. Um, but that that's a broad religion with uh, various uh, contending um, groups kind of within it, right? There's disagreements, there's schisms, there's heretics, there's the Orthodox. There's all kinds of things within that, you know, massive cathedral of America's religion. And as a thinker who positions himself on the left, it was a big question of, well, what is uh, useful about America as an idea? Or is it always hopefully, you know, reactionary? Does something about Americanism kind of need to be um, stripped down to have a genuine emancipatory project? And and I think I am, after writing the book, kind of ambiguous on that answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that the question itself is important. And I don't think it's necessarily a question that always... Uh, gets asked on the left other than just to say well of course like the idea is like hopelessly uh reactionary needs to be demolished and i'm not necessarily uh so sure about that so that's the thing that unifies all of the essays with a few exceptions there's a few kind of outlier essays that don't necessarily fit into that project but that seems to be like 90 percent of what the book is broadly about Uh, and then i sort of you know each one of the the chapters kind of um is a representative thing that you know will make some kind of abstract argument but through that kind of entrance of narrative anecdote that i mentioned earlier yeah, and, and you mentioned 2015 to 2017. I mean, that's the the build up to and the aftermath of our last presidential election. Yes, and, and yes. Trump is a specter in a lot of these essays, yeah. uh, either as this leading candidate for the Republican Party a nomination or as the resulting elected president, right? And so, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. a lot of the essays try to use historical inquiry as a way to understand, as a, as a method of gaining some wisdom about our current moment, I think. And I think he's only um, mentioned in one essay by name that I can think of. Yeah, they're all these hints, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, talking and some about... of them were written before. I mean, there was um, uh, the, the piece that I read about uh, 2016 as like a sort of hinge year where I talk about the Great Fire of London and, and all of this kind of stuff. Um, so the whole piece is kind of like, are there certain like apocalyptic years or whatever? And that was written um, a couple months before the presidential election. And it sort of ends on a like, well, you know, I don't use, I don't name him, but I'm like, let's hope he doesn't win, but he probably will. So I always have this kind of like, hey, I had foreknowledge, I guess, yeah. in a way that other people didn't. I mean, for this unpleasantness, but the, uh, yeah, the Oracle of Pittsburgh, Ed Simon. Yeah, right? exactly. I bring the blind Oracle. Of Pittsburgh. <laughs> well, let um, me. Uh, I wanted to. I guess since it's a collection of of short pieces. I thought it best to perhaps give a kind of a smattering of options, the types of subjects you write about. And so I've chosen sure. four for us to just sort of talk about a little bit, um, just to kind of give the listener a sense of the the range of essays that uh, are included in this volume. And so one thing, uh, the first one I would talk about is the an Augustinian left, mm-hmm. um, because first of all, that is a nice nicely connected to the last time you were on the show, you were Mm -hmm. talking about an article you wrote called a gospel for the left. And I think there are a lot of intersections between that article and and this essay. And, uh, and so first of all, do you want to talk a little bit about what an Augustinian left is? You, you begin by talking about this somewhat forgotten heretic named uh, Pelagius, I think is his name. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and comparing him to Augustinian and their debates or their competing notions of original sin. And you'd make something out of that. Yeah. So I sort of, um, I mean, this goes to my general project where I'm, I'm fascinated by, uh, 
political theology and what ways, uh, well, as we talked about last time on the show, what ways religious language can inform uh, particularly like left discourse or, you know, radical language or whatever. Um, so an Augustinian left was a piece that I wrote, uh, I want to say in 16 or 17, I actually can't remember. I think 17 is the year it came out. Uh, and uh, what I argue is that uh, Augustine as a, as a theological figure has a lot that he can um a lot that the left can draw from, particularly the language of original sin, which I think that um, naturally people who are who describe themselves as being left wing or as being liberal would kind of blanch at because it's this word that we associate with kind of like, you know, stern Jesuits or angry Puritans or whatever, right? Uh, but I think as a as a unifying interpretive principle, uh, there's something really helpful about understanding original sin when it comes to uh, economic injustice, political injustice, and, and so on. So one of the things, and I don't know if this is, uh, I always, I'm like worried about like applying critical theory to like my own writing, because I don't know if I'm actually picking out the right things or not. Uh, but one of the things that I've noticed in my own writing is this kind of like tension between uh, utopianism and anti-utopianism. Mm. So some, sometimes I'm like all about utopia, and then like the next day I am totally not. I think it's like a, a fool's errand and it will take us down the wrong path. So in some ways, when I, I talk about an Augustinian left, I'm not exactly using that as a synonym for the anti-utopian left, because I think utopian discourse is fundamentally important and crucial and we should not get rid of it. Uh, but I, I like the, um, the negativity about human nature that is implicit in an Augustinian understanding of the world. And I think we would all benefit by being like a little bit more uh, pessimistic about our fellow humans intentions on certain things, because I think that there's, uh, I, I don't want to use the word fallen is so loaded, but I'll use it anyhow. There's something naturally fallen about us in some sense. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a, uh, a kind of idealistic optimism on the left that sometimes ignores that fact. And you see it all of the time when there's a kind of like, uh, and this is, I think, more a hallmark of uh, liberal discourse as opposed to left discourse. But, well, everything just comes out of a sense of ignorance. If we just explain to people why they're being racist, they'll stop being racist. And it's yeah. sort of a like, the West you know, wing some, view of sometimes the world. people are bad. Like sometimes people, I mean, there are reasons for it, Yeah. you know, and I, I think you have to take into account those reasons. But like, um, you don't want to necessarily, there's a sense of treating people, I think, as like almost infants and i think when you when you meet them at their at at what they're saying if you take them at face value uh it might not be as pretty of you as you'd like to have people but it's a more honest view and i think sometimes uh left discourse uh, as opposed to the like oh we just need to educate people is sort of a like um you know, we just need to take care of uh, social and economic conditions and everything will be fine. I mean, I do not subscribe to the kind of like classical Marxist view that if you eliminate economic injustice, like uh, racism will suddenly disappear. You know, I know, maybe racism is constituted as something that was born out of the early modern period as a function of capitalism will change. But like, you know, bigotry and hatred will still be there because people are fundamentally not always great. Yeah. And I, and I don't mean that as a as an argument then to like, well, screw it, we shouldn't try to make the world a better place at all. And it's one of the things I talk about in the essay, but I do think, um, you know, having an awareness of that kind of fundamental malignancy in the human soul is, uh, is important. And I, I always go back to, uh, it's either GK Chesterton or CS Lewis. It's one of these like conservative 
kind of like uh, Oxford uh, movement type guys. So yeah. like, I don't necessarily agree with on like 80% of what they say, but I still kind of like them. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Chesterton where he said that original sin is the only like empirically verifiable claim of Christianity. <laughs> like that's kind of, it's kind of true. I mean, whenever, uh, you know, I always think of the kind of like, um, pie in the eye saying where people say you know oh, children need to be taught to hate and i think no they don't like have you never been around children like they do it pretty well on their own like yeah so it's it's kind of a, a plea um to the usefulness of that type of language yeah that uh that particular anecdote you know plays really well on like facebook viral videos and that sort of thing but when you see mm-hmm. some little two little kids of different races getting along smoothing swimmingly right and see so you see people you have to teach them to hate each other yeah they'll find a they'll find a reason right uh and so yeah, yeah. um I, I do want to get into this you talked about not being an orthodox you know uh old school marxist in this way mm-hmm. um so i want to take a, a a section of something from this essay here Uh, I'm I'm picking up in the middle of a paragraph. No, the vocabulary of rational profit motive is inadequate when profit motive irrationally pushes us to the brink of collapse. A better Mm -hmm. language is that of the medieval schoolman. The best language to describe individuals like the former CEO is the language of greed, of avarice, of sin. It is uh, consumption beyond reason, beyond mere logical explication. And we abandon a crucial aspect of our intellectual inheritance if we're not willing to use that language because it's never just economics, stupid. Sometimes it's the dark corners of the human heart too, right? And so that implies a kind of metaphysic, right, that is mm-hmm. at odds with a kind of orthodox, you know, big O orthodox Marxist, right? And so, yeah, yeah. Um, so you want to talk a little bit about that distinction for you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of it, too, is like I'm obviously sort of pushing back against, um, you know, the stereotype of a vulgar Marxist view where everything is like determined and everything can be reduced to material base versus ideological superstructure. And, you know, I always think that old story that uh, when Marx was an old man and he said, if this is Marxism, then I'm not a Marxist. Right. Like, (laughs) so I don't want to fall into that kind of like conservative view that like makes the most, um, simplistic understanding of marxism possible you know i understand it's a it's a big tent and there's various types of marxism well but if i'm if i'm not making myself that kind of vulgar orthodox marxist my straw man marxist uh i do i do think that there's a tendency to uh view human beings as rational actors uh in a way that's very similar ironically to how like adam smith talks about Mm -hmm. uh economics right uh, and that's because uh, capitalism and communism, socialism, they're they're all children of the 18th century Enlightenment, right? So they all have this kind of understanding uh, of of human beings as fundamentally rational that I think is incorrect. And I think that I mean we're rational sometimes, or we're rational for the short term, uh, and sometimes we're not for that matter as well. But I, I tend to subscribe to, and and I'm you know not in an anti-Enlightenment sense, but. Uh, I subscribe to an older um, metaphysic that bears more similarity to that type of Augustinian Christianity that understands that people will harm themselves, even if it doesn't make sense to harm themselves. Right. You know, if if people were rational actors and nobody would be a drug addict, nobody would be an alcoholic. Right. I mean, we do things in the short term that don't make sense in the long term. And I think if you take a look, if you're looking at our economic system only in terms of understanding people as being rational actors, then you would not see the situation that we are currently in right now. 
So I think that where I and an Orthodox Marxist would hopefully agree is that capitalism right now has pushed us to the brink of ecological collapse, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you read the most recent United Nations report, like we are in dire, dire trouble. I mean, capitalism is shaping up in its unfettered neoliberal hyper libertarian form to be perhaps the most destructive ideology that people have ever come up with. If it kills us all by the end of the century, like it, it's not worth it. Right. Right. Um, I think the thing is, is if we think of capitalism as being hyper rational, none of that is hyper rational. Yeah. Like it would make more sense to not pump out, you know, uh, carbon dioxide at a rate that is like warming our planet to where it can't sustain life as we know it now. Like we're, if you don't have consumers to buy anything because the apocalypse has happened, then it's not a rational system. So where I disagree uh, with the vulgar Marxist of my imagination is uh, <laughs> not really an issue of like uh, methods, but an issue of interpretation. I think. Yeah. So I think that I think that embracing that kind of metaphysic that um, understands people don't always do things for rational material reasons uh, is is more true. To, it's a language that I think um, is more congruent with the reality of things than than that other kind of positivist economic language. And there's a, a, a overlap there with orthodox, if you will, uh, religious thought as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Pope's encyclical Laudato Si uh, makes exactly the same argument, right? Yes. And, and so, uh, yeah, that's a way in which there is uh, some handholding going on between you and, and you know, big O orthodox religion, right? And yeah, so, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's worth reiterating that if we're talking about uh, a world leader in the West who's consistently anti-capitalist, there's nobody more visible than Pope Francis. Right. There's no head of any country that is as uh, accurate in his under, in his or her understanding of uh, capitalism's role in environmental collapse more than, than the Pope. And he's, I think that's an important thing to remember. He's speaking for a different set of shareholders, I guess, uh, when you think about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, the, um, and, and you think about metaphysics. I mean, even if you're a uh, an atheistic person who does not believe in an afterlife, I mean, there are ways of thinking of evolutionary biology as contributing to this original sin. It could be just different language to describe the same kind of fallen nature, right? And so, I, I think I see a lot of kind of bridge building in in this essay, and you're trying to um, connect people who normally wouldn't necessarily affiliate um, with a set of common interests here. And so, yeah, um, yeah, I think that that's a, a really great uh, introduction, a nice transition from the last time you were on the show, uh, and an introduction to the way that you go about these essays. Um, the next one I want to talk about, so a completely different subject all of a sudden, um, is you have one about Bob Dylan. Um, you, <laughs> I dreamed I saw Bob Dylan on an American prophet. And you, it's it seems to be on the occasion of his winning the the Nobel, and yeah. uh, that's almost incidental to you. You kind of seem to undermine how important the Nobel actually is, but uh, but it's an occasion to think about his significance not only as an artist but as a kind of spiritual guide as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's an essay that I think kind of had a when it was published before it was in the book. It sort of. Um, made a bigger splash than it ultimately did, which was interesting to me because it's an essay I definitely really enjoyed uh, writing. So in, in large part, I kind of wrote it as a brief to uh, 
to defend the idea that he was deserving of the Nobel Prize, but mm-hmm. also as you as you gesture towards by pointing out how like arbitrary and subjective yeah. and superficial the Nobel Prize in literature is. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I've read it as a as a pretty hardcore Dylan fan who's seen him multiple times, and he's kind of one of the few people that I got into when I was like fourteen that I remain into. You know, <laughs> like like Foreigner and Rush have dropped by the wayside, but Bob Dylan <laughs> is still there. Uh, so one of the things that always interests me, uh, with Dylan, it's the same stuff that interests everyone who likes Dylan, I think. It's just kind of like chameleon nature and the fact that he is this, uh, chimerical, that's a word I can use, figure, I didn't pronounce it right. Um, and I think, uh, one of the fascinating things with him is how he speaks in a profoundly American vernacular. I think we're talking about like the literary quality of his lyrics are unassailably among, you know, would be canonical American poetry for the second half of the 20th century. Uh, and so, I, you know, I talk about him as a religious figure because I think he's an interesting embodiment of a certain type of uh, American trickster archetype, right? Mm-hmm. Like whereby uh, there's something fundamentally ambiguous and malevolent about American identity in this weird kind of like transient, ambiguous way. Like the idea of self-definition uh, or kind of uh, individualism or bootstrapping or creating your own identity. I mean, there's something a little like um, demonic about that in the more general sense of the word, right? Like this kind of like magical thing that people can do. I always think, I don't know if you've ever read D.H. Lawrence's uh, studies in classic American literature. Uh, I have not. Oh, so incredible book it's got the most boring title imaginable um <laughs> That's why I but it's, it. <laughs> it's amazing he, he basically reads the american renaissance uh through his own like weird idiosyncratic lens so he looks at uh whitman and melville and uh dickinson and, and those sort of people uh but he i always think what's interesting about it is he gets america in a way that uh, oftentimes european writers don't so i think that there's a tendency uh, to kind of think of americans as like a kind of uh, optimistic rustic goofballs yeah and uh and i think it's a much darker reality than that because that's an act that's played and i think that what makes dylan so fascinating for all of his iterations is he makes obvious the kind of uh, mercurial nature of identity specifically as applied to an american identity Mm -hmm. so somebody like david bowie makes uh identity mercurial uh you know he does that as well he performs it right but dylan performs it in this very american way where he draws from these kind of archetypes of like you know, the the medicine man or the tent revival preacher or the like, you know, sort of American prophet or the the salesman, you know, all these kind of uh, like broad folkloric tropes. And he kind of embodies all of them really uh, in a fascinating kind of way and plays them off of each other. Yeah, you have a really great um, line in this essay because when I and I'm, I'm quoting here because when I say that Bob, uh, that, excuse me, that when I say that Dylan is an American prophet, that's precisely what I mean. And I argue that the Nobel Committee's awarding of the prize to such an unconventional nominee is an acknowledgement of a particularly American genius for religion. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think I'd like to hear more about what you mean by that. Uh, yeah, I don't. Did I uh, did I quote? Harold Bloom. In you that do. Essay. You're right into Harold Bloom right there. Yeah. Okay. Um, I know my mind well. Apparently. Um, yeah. I am Harold Bloom, who's a, a critic who uh, I have very conflicted relationship to as a thinker. 
Um, one of the books he wrote that I actually think is kind of underrated is called The American Religion, and I imagine that that's that's what I quoted in the essay. Yeah, it is. Um, and and, you, and I read yeah. somewhere else you quote that, you cite that and call it criminally underrated. I can't remember what I say that's oh, it. But oh, yeah, man, so yeah, you really like that book. So. <laughs> going out in a branch there. Yeah, he, uh, it's a fascinating book where one of the things where Harold Bloom at his best, I think, is a, is a, is a critical maxim. I always take that it's more important to be interesting than it is to be correct. Okay. When, when you're writing about the humanities, I'm going to say, not if you're a brain surgeon, but if you're, you know, I think that if we're talking about the sort of free interplay of ideas, of wonder when it comes to ideas, uh, I think at his best, um, there's something playful with him. So one of the things I'll say about the American religion as a book is I think as a work of historiography, it's like lacking in lots of ways because uh, it's it's weird. It's an idiosyncratic book where his argument is kind of that in America, there is a manifestation of a new type of religion that is similar to ancient Gnosticism and has to do with the type of like inner wisdom or inner light, as the Quakers call it, that is like where you fashion yourself almost as like a type of um, um, almost divine object in process. Right. Mm -hmm. It's very different from my Augustinian thing too, as you can say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But um, you know, he does these sort of case studies of what he calls this American religion. So he looks at, I think uh, Mormonism famously, he looks at um, uh, Southern the Baptists, uh, he looks at Pentecostals. He looks at, uh, I want to say Seventh-day Adventists and maybe Christian scientists. Mm. It's a very Christian-centered book in a sort of odd way for Bloom, too. Uh, but I think this idea of religion in America as being this issue of kind of like self-invention is like a really interesting one because it kind of combines the sort of uh, gauche mercantile interests of like American capitalism mm -hmm. to uh, a particular genius at american invention and I, I you know i think the last if you begin with like george whitfield maybe he wasn't american but he is certainly identified with america as kind of like a figure like the first figure who really has this kind of like embrace of um american self-invention through religion and i think that all of bloom's kind of examples interestingly tie into that idea and i see dylan as exemplary of that uh, as well you know, the whole idea in, in American religion where you're born again, can you think of anything that's like more about self-invention than that? You're like literally like birthing yourself again to an extent. And that's uh, that's how many of our sort of mythological characters, even of the 20th century immigrant generation, absolutely, famously yeah. changed their names, right? You know, Stan Lee is, you know, a recent example of someone who, yeah, yeah. you know, anglicized, it comes on with a new identity just by taking on of a new name. Yeah, that's something well, that, that's, you know, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, the earliest... Uh, and my academic specialization is in uh, Puritan writing of the 17th century. So, so much of, uh, in a lot of their sort of diary entries and sermons or whatever, they would treat the Atlantic Ocean like it was a baptismal font. Mm. So in coming to the new world, they were, you know, they didn't use the language born again necessarily. Some of them did later on, but uh, they kind of viewed themselves as fashioning this new identity. And that's intrinsic to the myth of Bob Dylan, right? Mm -hmm. Robert Zimmerman from Duluth, Minnesota, who hitchhikes to see dying Woody Guthrie, who gives him like a benediction, basically, and he <laughs> becomes Bob Dylan. He takes on this kind of mythic name, you know, associates him with Dylan Thomas and whatever else. Uh, and it's just, you know, he's kind of a guy where everyone talks about how inscrutable 
Dylan is as an individual, but I think what's fascinating about him is he made his life, his biography into part of his work of art too. Yeah. Cause that's part of what we talk about with him is like, we never like, what does Bob Dylan think about stuff? Like we don't know, yeah. like, <laughs> you know? And, uh, it's a ridiculous question on some level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever read Chronicles his really excellent biography, the one that won the yeah. Pulitzer a couple years ago, where he says every song that he ever wrote is about the civil war. And you're like, what? <laughs> you know, really? <laughs> but I think it might be, I don't know. Like, he's uh i think it's that like strange kind of winking interplay of authenticity with complete inauthenticity that makes him uh so american but i also think that's connected to that american religious tradition that bloom identifies yeah absolutely um he's and i want to get into this a little bit um because he's a um uh a figure that i think can represent a little bit of uh, uh, the the American civil religion, and that's a, that's a concept for you uh, that actually comes up uh, quite quite often uh, in, in this collection here. And the um, uh, I actually incidentally talking about Bob Dylan, I actually just for those of you who might be interested, I interviewed uh, an author um, Jeff Taylor uh, who wrote who co-wrote a book called The Political World of Bob Dylan, and and it talks about his um, engagement with politics, uh, but it, it also addresses his kind of shifting identities. and uh, And I, I did an interview with them for the Christian Humanist podcast. And if you're interested in more in Bob Dylan, um, I really enjoyed that book, and I really enjoyed talking to them. So anybody who's listening, go back into the archives of the Christian uh, Humanist profiles, excuse me, and uh, and, and check out that essay and then maybe get the book because it's a, it's a really nice extrapolation on how this kind of spiritual aspect of Bob Dylan's work actually kind of filters into whatever political statements he does have to make. Uh, and it's actually a pretty interesting book. So. I don't know if you, Go have ahead. you ever seen um, the Todd Haynes biopic about Bob Dylan? Oh, the I'm not uh, there. Uh, I'm not there. Yeah. Um, I have not actually. It is fantastic and very strange movie. Uh, most like rock, music biopics i think tend to be terrible yeah they tend to have the kind of narrative of like i was a drug and alcoholic and then the love of a beautiful woman (laughs) you know what i mean or whatever um whereas like the todd haynes biopic is there's like five different actors that play different aspects of bob dylan's personality it sounds super pretentious which uh i mean maybe it is at some points but i think that it also accomplishes what it's trying to accomplish about what we're talking about with dylan and identity really well yeah but one one of the characters who's actually uh played by christian bale by dick cheney (laughs) satan himself um he plays uh kind of the activist dylan who did stuff with uh uh, the NAACP and SDS and performed at the March in Washington and performed for the Freedom Riders and things. Yeah. And then he also plays, that's the Dylan character that becomes an evangelical Christian. Uh. Uh, and it's interesting because I always thought like this is because they're all different aspects of Dylan's personality, right? Yeah. Like, like Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. She does. She's the most biographically similar to the real Dylan is the interesting thing. Yeah. She plays the kind of like jittery amphetamine addicted, <laughs> like, uh, like swing in 1960s, Bob Dylan, Dylan goes electric, um, Bob Dylan. Yeah, yeah. And then there's like, uh, 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 Richard Gere plays the kind of like grail Marcus, um, <laughs> this old weird America kind of like medicine show Dylan. But the Christian Bale Dylan I thought was interesting is he played the Dylan that believes in stuff, right? Mm, that is interesting. Is what I thought. Yeah, I mean, he's like the activist Dylan. And I think there's a sort of like that prophetic urgency. It makes sense that Dylan, I mean, the Dylan's kind of conversion, which I know everyone always views as this kind of like uh, strange anomaly, makes total sense if you think of that as being like the Dylan who has convictions, right? Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, and also, I mean, it goes to one of your larger points is uh, that there is no such thing as not worshiping. I think you quote David Foster mm-hmm. Wallace in some mm-hmm. uh, some capacity in one of the essays, which is very much in line with a, a continuing interest of this show. We're big fans here of uh, James K.A. Smith and his Desiring the Kingdom, his cultural liturgies. He makes a very similar kind of argument that um, everything we do is a liturgical practice aimed at Ooh, centering your worship on something, right? And yeah. his whole, you got to serve somebody, right? Fits right into <laughs> that, right? Uh, so so yeah, there's a way in which Bob Dylan is maybe the perfect figure for your approach to understanding America, mm-hmm. uh, and so that that's great. And and so isn't so that's a good transition into this idea of the the civil religion. And there's a couple of essays that you um, talk about this concept in. And I want to go back to something earlier today. You said something about how you have this kind of uh, conflict within yourself about utopianism and anti-utopianism. Yeah. And you, in these two essays that I've chosen, incidentally, I mean, just happened to be one is kind of a dark view of this American civil religion and the other is more, much more of an optimistic view of it. And so the first one is the remembrance of Amalek. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is very much about America's, you know, being built upon, you know, genocide and the the murder of indigenous peoples and that sort of thing and how that becomes mythologized and becomes part of the American psyche, right? And, and so uh, at one point you have uh, a line in here, America became a land and a polity defined not by ethnicity or even religion, but by new, sometimes even darker criteria. In America, you conceptualize, you conceptualize yourself not by the blood flowing in your own veins, but by the blood of others that you spilled, right? And so you want to talk a little bit about that essay and how it relates yeah, to this idea of the civil religion? That's grim. Um, <laughs> that was a great line, though. Yeah, the, I, I'm trying to pick out lines. You have a great turn of phrase, Ed. And, uh, oh, thank I, you. I appreciate I'm hoping that. Uh, that people pick up on that. I'm trying to pick I out lines that, that yeah. Yeah, so that um, that essay was uh, um, one about something called King Philip's War, which uh, remains per capita the most violent war in American history. It's a 17th century colonial war. Um, the historian Jill Lepore has a fantastic book about it, which I actually quote in that essay. It's just called King Philip's War. Mm. Um, but it was uh, basically um, a concentrated attempt uh, by the uh, indigenous uh, tribes of New England to uh, make one last push to kind of expel the uh, English colonists. Uh, and it was, uh, I think, like a, like a two-year period that, that fighting went on. But the death toll on both sides was kind of like unimaginable. It was like a third of towns in New England had been like torched. And it was really, really violent. And the number of people that we're talking about are relatively small because it wasn't a huge population. But, um, but the actual violence of the event was, was really profound. Uh, and there's another author who I'm uh, very much indebted to, a guy named Richard Slotkin. He wrote a great book called Regeneration Through Violence on the American Frontier. Mm. Uh, and he, in the early, it's like a four volume bit on American violence. Uh, and what he uh, hypothesizes in the earlier volumes of that trauma of King Philip's War uh, became uh, instrumental in our understanding of ourselves as Americans uh, because it was. Um, such a traumatic and violent event that it kind of like, even though most people never heard of it, uh, it kind of echoes down through what we, what we think about when it means to be an American. One of the fascinating things is, uh, is the term of calling yourself an American really has its origins from around that time, the late 17th century in new England, because the term American as it's used in earlier texts means indigenous people, right? So if the Spanish write about Americans, they're not talking about Spanish colonists in America. They're talking about, 
uh, Amerindians, right? Um, the same with the English who lived in the South for the most part. So it's only in New England that um, English people begin thinking of themselves as being American. And it's kind of through this like bloody, fiery crucible of uh, King Philip's War. Uh, and it was, you know, we're talking about um, just tremendous, tremendous violence. And it kind of, the culmination of it was this act of uh, ethnic cleansing that the English then perpetrated against uh, the, you know, the Narragansett and the Abenaki and uh, the different groups that lived in, in sort of Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, the parts that were affected from the war. Uh, but I think a lot of, if you look at our language in this country, um, a lot of it, you know, is kind of mirrored by the the language you see from the war itself. So this idea of being continually under attack, right? But in America, we're always, we're, we're petrified, we're terrified of the kind of like howls in the wilderness, right? There's this kind of like um, imagined threat that always exists. And it's almost kind of like, the way in which people will like relive a trauma uh, even after the actual threat has passed. We're like always a, like scared of the sort of uh, uh, what is at the edge of the village, what's in the, the wilderness right beyond our sight line. Right. Uh, and so one of the things I do is I give this sort of background on uh, King Philip's war. And I talk about how this kind of like bloody sense of nationhood merged out of that and how we've used that same language continually in american history uh, ever since then right yeah at one point you say history may not repeat itself as it is said but it certainly echoes these dark elements of the american civil religion the sacred violence the purification of blood through blood the stark definition of who exactly is the other all of this reoccurs like an ide fixe in a symphony written in the minor key. And then you talk about how it, you can see it in the Birchers all the way up till today. Right. And so yeah, th there's yeah. this sort of repeated um, paranoia about the other. And that is constitutive of what it is to be an American. Right. And, and that's kind of absolutely that's very yeah. bleak, isn't it? And so, well, you know, one of the things that I always, uh, and I think it goes to my kind of like um, ambivalence over what it means to be an American. And if there is something redemptive in the uh, American ideal, I fundamentally think that there is, and I sort of explore that in, in other essays. But uh, one of the things that I've seen that's been really unsatisfying about a lot of liberal discourse in the age of Trump um, is it's it's written in that very American um, genre of the Jeremiah, whereas we think of uh, you know Trump as like an aberration and not the culmination of a certain type of malignant Americanism, right? So uh, like the sort of hashtag resistance crowd will always talk about Trump only in terms of him as an aberration while completely ignoring that uh, he does embody a lot of very negative qualities of Americanism. Like he's not some like space alien that came in yeah. uh, and took over the country. I mean, he's a, he's a construction of our own sort of nightmares here. And I think, you know, you see it. Uh, we don't know what he's going to do tonight when he does his, uh, his broadcast <laughs> broadcast. I imagine he'll probably declare a state of emergency uh, where none exists to build his, uh, to build, try and build his, uh, his border wall. But there you see the exact same sort of logic of, uh, of King Philip's war, right? Like mm -hmm. we're the English on the inside and we have to keep, you know, the Indians on the outside, except now it's, you know, refugees from Honduras or whatever. Right. It's the same sort of like, um, fearful trope, traumatized trope repeating itself. Uh, and I think it's that sort of, uh, I think we do, we do a disservice and we're not being honest if we pretend that being an American has only ever meant 
the most beautiful of abstractions from the Declaration of Independence, right? Yeah. Because it's also meant this other stuff. Yeah. And that's one of the things is uh, we always talk about the uh, the rewriting of history. You know, like uh, conservatives will get enraged if anyone is ever honest about like Columbus being a terrible person, which I can tell you is a historian of early America. He most definitely was. Yeah. But there's an odd way in which uh, liberal apologists will rewrite American history, too. And it's just kind of like, you know, well, in the past, when everyone came to uh, America with a dream and people were treated horribly when they came to this country, we enacted massive genocide against the indigenous people of this country. You know, if you if you pretend that American history is all sweetness and light until Trump, that's just as bad as pretending that uh, the Civil War wasn't about slavery or whatever. You know, it's the same type of myopia. It's just a sunny version of that myopia. Uh, and I think there, there was a great piece that was in the Boston Review like three months ago, maybe. Uh, and I can't remember who the author was, but he said, what white supremacists get about American history? Uh, and it's sort of like when these like really um, awful alt-right kind of people say, well, American history was written by white supremacists. They're not wrong, right? I mean, that was what was Manifest Destiny, but like the murder of people and sort of uh, push to the West. The point isn't that like we should oppose Trump because Americans were great in the past when Americans weren't great in the past. The point is let's be better in the future. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's, I think that there is something uh, liberatory or emancipatory about the American ideal, that kind of city on a hill ideal, but we have to acknowledge the, uh, the sort of um, bloodiness uh, that also happened at the same time. Yeah, there's definitely a kind of a liberal MAGAism um, as well, right? And and so oh, it's the whole like uh, <laughs> America's always been great kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like you know no <laughs> yeah yeah and and no i think you're exactly right and it's one of the great accomplishments of this collection is that you find case studies like this that yeah. sort of illustrate these larger um forces that we still kind of inha- we not only inherit but sort of live with today and so yeah i totally uh, i totally um think it's worth looking at and so um on the note then on more slightly more optimistic note um is uh, the the near the end of the collection an almost chosen people? Mm. Uh, now in this essay you have a, another sort of exploration of the American civil religion, but it, it's kind of a, a a much more optimistic one. You, mm-hmm. you go to sort of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg mm-hmm. Address as kind of an example of of theological work, right? And uh, mm-hmm. con- the construction of this new religion um, as we go. And so, do you want to talk about the civil religion as you see it in that essay? Yeah, yeah. So uh, simple religion is one of those like great academic terms that I kind of like, you know, uh, filched from my previous life as a as a scholarly writer. Uh, and it's from a sociologist named Robert Bella. I mean, the term itself is much older, it goes back to like Rousseau, but Bella's who kind of made it um, current in uh, scholarship. And he defines civil religion basically as being kind of like the unifying set of symbols and texts that bind Americans together under a constructed identity, similar to Benedict uh, Arnold's idea of uh, uh, imagined communities. Mm. Um, and that, Benedict uh, Anderson. Benedict Anderson, sorry, yeah. <laughs> Benedict, Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold had a different idea. Oh my God, I did it. I was like, oh man. Benedict Arnold did not come up with that different, different guy. I was like, wow, there's something I wasn't aware of there. Good. Yeah, he had a whole long political theory career. Um, <laughs> But uh, the idea is that you have these sort of like things like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, the Gettysburg Address, the um, sort of ethos of Americanism that is transcendent of 
uh, ethnicity uh, or religion or, or race or language or whatever, right? It's an abstract, uh, transcendent kind of faith that can unify together a disparate group of people. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of what the logic here is, is that in the 17th and into the 18th century, uh, as nation states uh, began to emerge in Europe, they oftentimes explicitly defined themselves through an obviously constructed ethnic kind of identity, right? Uh, so instead of being uh, from Provence or uh, Catalonia or Basque or, or whatever, you were all suddenly like French. Instead of being uh, Cornish or Welsh or Scottish or Irish or English, you were all suddenly British, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas one of the interesting things with American identity from the same time, because America, even then, maybe especially then, was tremendously ethnically, racially, and linguistically diverse, uh, that the identity that was forged was something that was almost more covenantial, right? That was kind of most similar to the sort of uh, concept from the Hebrew scriptures of disparate people coming together under an ethos, under a creed or mm. a belief, right? Mm -hmm. And that the American civil religion, as kind of... Um, defined through the egalitarianism as expressed uh, by Lincoln at the Gettysburg Address uh, is, a, is a particular uh, manifestation of that. And I think what you've always had in American history is this sort of conflict and tension between people who have a much more traditional view. And I, you know, we use the term, I think I use the term blood and soil there, which is a loaded term because obviously it comes out of uh, the far, far right. But mm -hmm. that's the kind of Trumpian view that an American is a person who looks white and is a Christian, right? Yeah. That is, that's what uh, they define an American as being. But implicit to the earliest days has been an idea of America as having kind of a, a millennial expectation, right? That anyone can be an American, right? And that is also, that's not like a 1960s multicultural view. That goes back to colonial America. I mean, you can read Letters from an American Farmer by uh, De, De Crevacois, where, and he's a Frenchman, and he's living in rural Pennsylvania, and he's basically saying, oh, in America, you can be, you know, you can be a Quaker, you can be a Presbyterian, you can be Catholic, you can be an uh, Anglican, but you're an American, you can be Swedish, you can be Dutch, you can be English, you can be, you know, whatever. Uh, and obviously, this has been like a limited view in history. Like, it's, uh, you could view American history in large part as being the story of making that view more all-encompassing. So the brilliance of Lincoln, and I think he's probably our only president who's really been a profound theological thinker as well, uh, is he took the um, he took the Constitution, which is a uh, profoundly compromised document. It was the old uh, William Lloyd Garrison thing, where it was like an infernal document written by Satan in hell or something. Right? <laughs> but you know, the Constitution super conflicted. I mean, it's the document of the three fifths compromise. I mean, we really valorized the Constitution in a strange kind of way. But he reinterpreted the Constitution through the promise of the Declaration of Independence, which, of course, has a, uh, a much more radical kind of understanding of Americanism. I mean, I, I'm one of those uh, kind of weird people who still thinks that the preamble of the Declaration of Independence expresses something fundamentally revolutionary in a really profound way. And I still think that there's a lot of oomph to that, right? So I think that uh, American civil religion is a, a way of viewing that preamble as this kind of creed that it does not matter who you are, or what you look like, or where you're from. That's the ideal that we should, that we're all kind of unified in this sort of like, um, this millennial expectation, if that kind of makes sense. It does. Um, and, and it's real, uh, a real challenge, I think. The idea of the American civil religion is mm -hmm. a real challenge for, um, 
uh, I don't know how to say it. the way you use the term of religion. It's a uh, it's a little difficult to say what I'm saying, but actually religious people like uh, mm. like uh, you know metaphysically religious people, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and so particularly on the on the Protestant end of the scale, right? Who mm-hmm. there's a tendency to think of America as this kind of Christian nation, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But you have a really great line in here: uh, a land where that excuse me, a land that excuse me, a land where that disestablishment of the churches not only resulted in a tremendous creative fervent ferment for religion itself, but which also lent itself to the development of a shadow, a type of shadow religion, which took America itself as its focus, a religion Mm -hmm. which furthermore could be embraced across denominational lines and by those of no traditional faith at all, right? And so the institution of this American civil religion has kind of massive theological ramifications for yeah, for yeah. people who believe in scripture, right? Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. It's interesting because I think I, I've, um, and maybe this is because of the last two years, uh, I don't want to say that I've necessarily moved away from that view, but I've become a little bit more sensitive to the critique of um, what is uh, precisely so noxious about talking about a country in that particular way. And I think that there are some very... Um, radical Christian thinkers uh, in a left sense who very much critique the kind of uh, potential for idolatry that exists in American civil religion. So, uh, you know, what I'm trying to put forward in that essay, at least, is a type of left American civil religion. I see. Okay. Uh, Yeah. But I I do think that, uh, you know, we're seeing um, at least a segment of white evangelicals who are Trump supporters kind of metastasize into like a really uh, perverted form of kind of idolatrous American civil religion. Uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. is... Oh my God. I mean, it's... um, I think I tweeted out that I don't think he could see actual Christianity with the Hubble telescope at this point, right? I mean, it seems to me undeniably um, heretical, right? (laughs) So I guess what I was saying with a left American civil religion is in an Orthodox Christian sense, it would also be heretical, right? Yeah. But I, I was kind of positing it as a uh, as an emancipatory or, or left-wing different religion, really. Yeah. And when I was trying to use America uh, as a very – one of the things I'll do rhetorically is when I talk about the um, government of this country or when I talk about the country itself, I oftentimes use the phrase United States. Uh, because I, I think that that has a sort of legal definition to it, right? Whereby we think of the, the country located between Mexico and Canada and the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans with a capital in Washington, D.C., right? And that's a country like any other country. What interests me, also as somebody that studies Renaissance literature, is America is kind of like a mythic idea, I right? See, yeah. So America kind of thinking, um, thinking of it as like utopia, right? As like a kind of a, an imagined place that you can use as a benchmark by which you measure how much progress you are making as a people. Uh, and I think of that America as being the kind of place where like everyone's created equal, right? And that equality is what allows for a certain freedom and whatever. That's clearly not the United States that we live in, but I think that kind of American ideal uh, can be really profound um, as, a, as a kind of uh, theological vocabulary in its own right, right? And that's where I see American civil religion as being uh, useful um but it, you know implicit within it is a kind of american exceptionality uh which again i'm not talking about necessarily the historical embodied country um but obviously you know you can't disconnect that from it either uh and i could see that american exceptionality being something that would um 
turn a lot of uh, leftists off, and I I totally understand why. You know, yeah. I get that, but that's that's the sort of thing I'm interested in exploring with that type of language. A, a corollary for my religious, my Christian listeners, which probably most are, um, I would guess, but um, a corollary might be the difference between Christianity and Christendom. Uh, mm. so, uh, yes, a, yes. A, maybe a loose corollary, but something. No, I think that works really well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and so one before we you know sign off for today, you have a little bit of anxiety about the stability of this American civil religion. I think you talk about us being in a cold civil war, if I remember mm-hmm. right. Um, and what are your thoughts on kind of the state of the faith, if you will? Uh, not good. <laughs> I think, I think that, um, you know, in my life, the height of the American civil religion of a progressive American civil religion that I saw was during, uh, 08 with the Obama uh, election. And I think Obama, was uh, very adept at speaking uh, certain progressive civil religious language, as adept as any you know politician that I've ever seen uh, in in my lifetime. Yeah, and, uh, I and, think the problem. And incidentally, he won both the popular vote and the electoral college by wide margins. Right, that was yes, a, a, yes, yes. a sign of his kind of unifying uh, message in that moment. I, I think his language spoke, uh, you know, coming out of the traumas of the financial collapse and the Iraq war um, that, you know, I think that was a time when people were ready to really hear that sort of like hopeful kind of language. I think that and it's not entirely his fault. And I think that sometimes um, I don't always agree with the critique of him as being particularly sophisticated, but I think that I can broadly say that it was a missed opportunity. Mm. I think that uh, a lot was squandered then. I think that people were uh, hungry for something that was a bit more radical. Uh, And I think that that contributes in part to the disenchantment with uh, American civil religion. And then I think the development of Trumpism is kind of like the, the dark occult path of American civil religion uh, is the other thing there. You know, I, I have a, an essay that I wrote for His, History News Network that I don't think is in the book, but it came out when a lot of these essays were being uh, written. Uh, and I sort of say that uh, Trumpism is um, kind of the collapse of the American civil religion as well, because Trump does not see the United States as exemplary in any kind of transcendent or millennial way. He just sees it as very, very powerful. Oh. Uh, and that that can be something that is used uh, uh, in, a, in a particular kind of way. I mean, I understand that my view uh, can lend itself to the worst of like liberal interventionist do-gooderism, right? I don't want to have like a kind of like left-wing version of the neocons or something. I'm not, I, I would not advocate for that at all. But I do think the kind of like abdication of any kind of belief in a, a emancipatory political project, as opposed to just like craven realpolitik international strategy, is uh, is disturbing, right? Yeah. Uh, I do think that we are, and I'm actually going to be working on a piece that hopefully will be coming out soon. I do think we see the emergence of uh, a more traditional but very vibrant left left. Uh, in opposition to Trump. It does not necessarily speak the language of the American civil religion, but I also think that that's okay. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that sort of new, newish left or newer left, whatever you want to call it, uh, has a lot of hope implicit within it. And that will hopefully uh, bear um, more sustainable fruit than what uh, the Obama years did. Yeah. And my own kind of oh, just sort of survey of that landscape, I think that there is a 
an openness to religious language, at least mm. uh, with this newish left um, than, that, than we've seen before in, in a way that yeah. I think you argue for in, in a lot of your work too. So, um, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, yeah. you know, she speaks the language of like Catholic social justice very adeptly. Very much. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that that sort of class of uh, mostly women that have come into the most recent house elections, I mean, some of them are incredible, uh, and I think that um, I think that there's a lot to be hopeful for in that sense right now. Yeah, uh, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. You know, I, I always go back to the, uh, and I was very moved by Obama when he was elected, uh, as like you know most of us were, or a lot of us were, I guess I should say. Uh, but that kind of like language of like you know we're not a blue America, we're not a red America, we're the United States of America. Like that is, seems wrong to me. I think we're very much a blue America, a red America. Uh, and I'm, that's not to speak against uh, dialogue or reproachment at all, but I think that uh, I think that the new class of Democrats is a little bit more um, honest about what we actually face in terms of differences in this country. Yeah. Uh, in terms of that cold civil war, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. There's your utopian anti-utopian struggle emerging once yeah. again, Ed. So yeah, exactly. Um, Ed Simon, thank you again. This was great. I really enjoyed talking to you about the book and I really enjoyed reading it. Um, those of you who are listening, if you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com, um, you'll find the show notes for this episode. And on that, on the show notes, I'll put a link to where you can find, um, this really great collection of book, uh, of essays, America and Other Fictions, published by Zero Books. Uh, Ed Simon, thank you so much. I uh, hope you thank all you. is well, and we look forward to your next book sometime next Thanks summer. Thanks so much. All right, bye.